1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Women's History. My name is Hannah Smith and today I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah Fox about her book Giving Birth in 18th Century England. Sarah is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of History at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Sarah, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today.
0: Thanks for inviting me, Hannah.
1: So just to get us started, uh, can you tell us a bit about the premise of this project?
0: Certainly. So the book is basically an attempt to access women's experiences of giving birth in 18th century England. And it started from this really basic question, what is it like, what was it like to give birth? And I'd done some work on it in my uh, master's studies at the University of Leeds, uh, and I noticed that most of the information about birthing was taken from medical books, so books written by... uh, man midwives, um, and, and doctors looking to kind of set out the way in which to handle birth, a medical way of handling birth. And it struck me that there were very few women's voices there, that we didn't hear much from, from the women and the, the men, the fathers that were involved in this process. So I wanted to try and recover some of those. Um, experiences. So the pra- the basic premise of the book is is to explore birth and birthing from the perspective initially of the woman that's giving birth, but then that moves outwards and it includes um, the baby's father, includes the woman's parents, grandparents of the child, the community and the neighborhood that surround them.
1: Uh, how did you become interested in this topic?
0: It started off as an interesting ritual. So I I really enjoyed when I was doing my undergraduate studies and my master's studies, I really enjoyed thinking about rituals, but not the kind of big, spectacular rituals, the sort of smaller everyday ones. Uh, And then I started, so then I started to think about childbirth as a a kind of everyday thing a a normal ritual that still held this huge significance Uh, and then halfway through my master's I did my master's studies part-time because I was also working Uh, I happened to give birth myself which changed my perspectives a lot actually so my master's thesis whilst it sets out some of the basic ideas that eventually end up in the book it's from a really different perspective and, and having my own child and experiencing that whole process just kind of shifted the way that I was, that I was approaching the primary documents. Uh, So I had previously relied a lot on these amazing books written by these men about, about how to handle a a birth. But I started to want to know the other side to, and you know, these women, you feel a a connection. And I'm, I'm currently working on something at the moment about connection with historical figures because childbirth is this really, I think unusual event because it's uh, kind of such a key physical event. People feel a great connection to it. Now it's something that I try to explore a bit in the book, and I, you know, I wonder how successful I am. Is is that gulf in difference between how we experience childbirth and how these women that I write about in the book experience childbirth, and how the kind of society and culture shaped those feelings? So you have this strong tie with. event a powerful physical embodied event that you feel you should know but then when you start to unpick it it you you know it's so strongly shaped by culture and by society that you can't possibly know exactly how it felt and that's i find that really fascinating
1: yeah i really enjoyed your discussion of uh feeling throughout the book and that's definitely something i want to make sure we get we get into in this interview Um, But first I was wondering uh, if you could tell us uh, what archives you used in your research and how the availability or unavailability of different kinds of material uh, affected the research you were able to do.
0: That's a great question. Um, So
1: I I often joke actually
0: about um, working on archives that are mainly in the North of England uh, because I had friends at the same time that were working on archives in Barbados. And there was me in Manchester an hour away from home uh, working through the archives. Uh, so the scope of the book is very much focused on North of England and that's because I live there and as I've just said uh, I have or had at the time small children and that restricts the the distance that you can travel so my archives were more or less all within an hour's drive of my home so I could get there and back in a day. Uh, I think that made the project better actually because uh, in England Obstetric expertise was focused in London and in Edinburgh. So, in London, you had all the um, hospitals, the lying-in hospitals, and you also had some training facilities for men midwives in particular. And in Edinburgh, the university offered a degree uh, that included man midwifery uh, from, I can't remember, I think it's the middle of the century so those were these kind of centers of obstetric innovation new ways to handle childbirth but i didn't really want to find out about that so this sort of self imposed restriction on uh, to the north of england i think really helped me to think and to see uh, non exceptional uh, experiences of childbirth and that's how i worded it in the book and i had a real had a lot of difficulty actually coming up with that term because whilst no experience of birth is normal, right? Normal is not, not a good word to use, but often it's the exceptional experiences that make it into the literature. So you would get, you know, in this medical literature, you would get discussions of unusual presentations, difficult deliveries. And I wanted to access the more every day, whilst also acknowledging that no birth is every day. Each one is special and different for the people at, at, at the centre of it. Uh, because it's it's ultimately miraculous isn't it so um, that move away that that focus on regional archives i think was really helpful uh, in terms of finding the material um, it was an ac- it was an accident really so i was very lucky to have a conversation with adrian wilson who i'm sure you're uh, familiar with when i was an undergraduate at leeds and i talked to him and said you know he expressed an interest in the subject and he said a comment that I mean I'm absolutely confident he won't remember but he made a comment along the lines of uh, well you know there's been a lot written about it most of it by him Uh, and you know you'll have to find maybe some letters that we don't know about a cache of letters perhaps that that will add to, to the to the knowledge and I went off and looked at some letters and I realized that actually experiences of birthing were often buried in normal letters everyday letters so that these experiences are sort of tied up in complaints that somebody's not been to visit them or the price of wool in Manchester that week. And then you'll see a little line saying, you know, my wife was delivered of a son. and So these, you know, that started again, that switch to different ways of looking at it. So picking through lots of different types of document. Um, I used a, a huge range of different primary sources to put together the arguments in the book uh, because I was kind of picking through for these little incidental comments that once you started to look at them revealed a huge amount of information. Great.
1: Um, so as you alluded to, um, central to your book is this idea that um, birthing is a process that goes beyond labor and delivery. Uh, could you tell listeners a little bit about how this worked? Yeah, so
0: in the 18th century, you see the rise of this, what what I would call quite a modern understanding of birthing, which is very much focused on the point of delivery because that's the transformational moment. The baby arrives um, and, you know, a mother is born as well as an infant. And, and so much of the medical literature focuses on delivery because that's a kind of controllable moment. That's something that you can observe. Uh, and I realised that in the sources that i was looking at delivery hardly gets mentioned so i i haven't found a detailed description of a delivery written by anybody other than a medical man it's not to say there's not there isn't one out there but it it generally got glossed over but what i did notice is that the men and women that i was whose letters i was reading they talked about the other parts of birthing so they would talk about the labor and how long it took and and whether it was painful. They would talk a lot about the lying in, uh, which is the four week period after birth where a woman was expected to rest. And there'd be lots of people in the house sitting and, and kind of undertaking the chores for her. Uh, so I realized that those were the points that that people really focused on and then when I started to kind of look at the umbrella terms for birthing so you have women referring to confinement as a as a kind of catch-all for everything lying in at this catch-all for the whole process of giving birth from the moment that pregnancy ends and labouring starts right through to the time that they resume their normal household duties uh, and that kind of caused a a shift in perspective for for these women giving birth was this whole period that lasted several weeks. Um, And that really opened up the scope of things to look at. So the book has a chapter on food uh, and drink and how an infant's birth will be celebrated. And that was fascinating. And the, you know, there's lots of traditions uh, connected to food and drink that just hadn't been really explored because they fall outside that delivery moment, that, that kind of central, point of drama in the birthing chamber but once once you move beyond that there's this wealth of information that sheds light on the networks that women were operating within and the kind of social tensions and the cultural draws that were shaping childbirth in the birthing chamber at this time.
1: Um, How did births uh, promote community building? Is there anything that surprised you about this piece of your research? I noticed this come up as a a theme throughout the book. Yeah
0: that. That theme really emerged as the research was ongoing. So it was a, it was a very organic process. But I began to realise that I started to think about identity and community and neighbourhood and what pulled that neighbourhood of women together. So you have uh, these women that are close by when a, when a birth is imminent. And you start to think about, well, are they there deliberately? Are, are they waiting for the birth? Who's watching? Who's paying attention? Who's there? Who gets invited in? And once you start seeing these questions or asking these questions, you start to see that there's these kind of threads of community and network, the birthing chamber at the centre of them. And the birthing chamber pulls in local women and it does it in a sort of um, centric circle effect you have the birthing family at the very centre and there's a chapter in the book on this this is the uh, birthing woman uh, and sometimes the the, her husband who stays very close not in the birthing chamber but nearby uh, her mother sometimes their mother-in-law sometimes their sister and then maybe a couple of friends and they're in this kind of central group that get to be there when the baby is born but then you have these visiting women that live nearby and they might hear the cries of the infant which suggests that they're really close if they hear the cries of the mother and the cries of the infant while she's giving birth and then you have this next circle of neighbours that will visit over the first week or two um, of the lying in after the birth. And then you have this even broader community then that might attend the the child's christening or the mother's churching, or that will see the infant when it goes uh, out for the first time. So I started to kind of see the birthing chamber at the very center of these networks. And then of course, as soon as you start to think about community, you start to think about inclusion and exclusion and and who is allowed in, who, who is seen as being part of the community. And the other fascinating thing is that I, that I realized was that these communities that I was thinking about, these groups of women, were really transient. So these birth provided a kind of snapshot of the community at that moment. Now I can't always see that snapshot, but it wasn't, it wasn't for me. It was for these women. They could see who was near, who was part of the community, who wasn't, who was involved. And it. so it started to for the women in the birthing chamber birth mapped out these connections and, and neighboring networks in a really kind of precise way for that moment, because they were always changing as people came and went. people died in childbirth, so, you know, these, these networks were always shifting and changing. And, um, and so through that, I kind of realized that the birthing chamber was this important social space really over the course of the, the, the six weeks or so that, that a woman was giving birth Under the the definition that I set at the beginning of the book, it was really important for the way that that people kind of interacted and socialized uh, at this this period in time when your neighbors were really important because um, they were often, you know, you relied on your neighbors for survival a lot of the time.
1: As you've uh, mentioned a little bit, um, your book is divided into five chapters in in addition to the introduction and conclusion. Uh, Each chapter focuses on a different theme around birth. Uh, You have the body, the household, food, family, and the community. Um, How did you arrive at these categories, and why did you divide the book up in this way? Well,
0: again, this was quite organic, uh, and actually it changed. This this book was based on my PhD thesis, and I divided it slightly differently in the PhD thesis, and I think this way works a lot better. And this was mainly because they were this kind of Separated slightly by source, uh, source type. So each chapter sort of focuses on a different type of source, not exclusively. So women's letters run throughout the book. And that's really kind of where I get a lot of the information from. But then each chapter is supplemented by uh, different types of primary source. So the chapter on the body is supplemented by the kind of medical writings of the day. The chapter on food is supplemented by recipe books, manuscript recipe books, um, and the the kind of contents, the way that they were set out and the types of recipes that were included in them. So that kind of helped to crystallize the structure. But then also it was about trying to find these key themes and make sure that you could build a coherent argument around them. So obviously the body is a really important part of birthing. And it's one that's remarkably absent from a lot of the medical books so you often have a description of a, a birth. that doesn't really mention the body very much, um, which is incredible when you think about it. But of course, it's kind of taken as read that you have this body that's performing this amazing thing. Uh, and so I started to think a little bit about hormones. I really tied myself up in a knot trying to think that, that particular problem through, but how the body shapes birthing, but then also how birthing shapes the body. And that, that was a really kind of thorny problem that I had to think my way through. So, you know, it was also about identifying these key themes that, that each of, each one was an important part of this birth process that, that I kind of introduced at the very beginning of the book. Uh, and I think it sort of helped. I was hoping that, that the book could be read that, that it would speak to different types of historians too. So historians of the body, historians of the family, historians of emotion. And these were all the kind of areas that I was interested in as well. So it sort of made sense to try and uh, create chapters that spoke to these particular historiographies in different ways.
1: Um, so as you've mentioned, the line and practice was very important and essential to this book Um, Could you explain for our listeners a bit about what lying in was and how it was different for women of different social classes?
0: Certainly. So the lying in period lasted roughly four weeks. And I say roughly four weeks because it does appear to have changed slightly depending on how strong and how emotionally well the birthing woman was. So it kind of went in stages that were very much dictated by the woman's body and and her emotional state. So it would immediately after you gave birth, you would be expected to rest in bed. Um, You wouldn't be expected to take on any domestic tasks. You simply cared for the child. You would try to feed the child um, because breastfeeding, certainly in the the days following the delivery was, was important. Um, So rest and recovery was a really crucial part of the lying in period. And then as you felt, more recovered as you felt stronger you would sit up in the bed and then you would move around the room and you have all these interesting different boundaries so you might move around your bed chamber when you felt strong enough and then coming downstairs in your house is a bit of a moment so that the moment that you go downstairs to take tea instead of having tea brought up to you is an important one and the final kind of rough stage is when you leave the house and that's after you've uh, been what's called churched which was where women uh, went to the parish church with the infant and Uh, were cleansed, cleansed of their sins um, and were recognized sort of by the parish community as having given birth and having completed that process. That was an important moment and what what's really interesting is that this process is roughly followed by women of all social classes so one of the things that I was really I thought was remarkable when I was researching the book was that Whilst obviously there's these huge material differences for women of different social status, the kind of overall framework is recognisable. So you have this: the lying in period was important, as important for a poor woman as it was for a for a rich woman. Uh, the Viscountess Irwin, she had her four weeks of rest and recovery in the same way that Sarah Harold, who was a, a Manchester woman and her husband was a was a bookseller, and they had you know different material experiences very different but similar kind of processes of rest and recovery and recuperation um one of the big differences though is the room in which women would recover the lying in room which was you know was the birthing chamber and women remained in that room Uh, if you were wealthy and you had lots of domestic space it might be a kind of suite of rooms uh, with the infant nearby and the nurse if you were moderately well off you would have your own chamber and you would stay there Uh, but if you were poorer you had to be a little bit more creative in in the way that you use space during this whole whole period so um, you have women using the bed curtains to create a kind of secluded domestic space after the birth, so the, birth, the the entire room will be used during the birth, but then for this lying period you might draw the curtains around the bed to create a kind of space within a space where someone could rest in the cover. Uh, and a really important part of the lying period was was being visited um, by, by all sorts of people, so absolutely friends and family members would come to celebrate the birth, but also um, potentially people you didn't like, neighbours, people that were important in the community. It was the dumb thing to kind of call in and see the infant. And one of the really fascinating things that I found was looking at some um, infanticide court records where the mother had been accused of killing the infant. Uh, And uh, there's one particular case where there's lots of testimonies from women that visited and they recognized the infant because it had a mark by its nose and they're saying i remember because i cradled it and i you know made some linens and wrapped the infant and that gives a really fabulous insight into what was going on when people visited so they were there yes to take tea and to maybe eat some cake. Uh, I talk a lot about what's called a groaning cake, which was a celebratory cake that you would make before you gave birth and then distribute to all the people that visited you while you were there. So there was absolutely celebrations. And sometimes I think that probably involved a little tipple or a a cup of tea, but it also involved uh, helping in the household, looking after the children, cuddling the infant, talking to the other people that were there. So it was a really important arena for the exchange of information, social information about what was going on. Uh, so these spaces were really busy, lying in uh, whilst it was a period of rest and recuperation. It was also quite busy uh, and quite lively, more lively than I think uh, you would assume initially when you start to think of it as a period of rest and recovery. Um, and I would also add that it wasn't just physical recovery. Uh, so emotional recovery was important too, that the lying in period was designed to sort of restore the woman so that she could um, regain her status. So her status in the household, she could take back control of the household and the children, uh, but she could also kind of um, go back to that social status that she'd enjoyed before. Um, So it was important that she was emotionally well as well as physically well.
1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. What do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to download the new Bumble now. Um, So I was somewhat surprised and intrigued by the prominent place of infanticide in this project about birthing. Uh, Could you explain why it's necessary to understand something about 18th century infanticide in order to understand birthing in this period?
0: So, as I think we've discussed already, sources for this type of project are fragmentary. So you're always sort of, I was always picking through different types of documents to try and find out information about birth. And it was, this was exacerbated because I was trying to find out about this kind of everyday experience, this non-exceptional experience. Um, And infanticide cases absolutely are exceptional um, experiences of birth, but they contain a huge amount of incidental information about what was expected. Because um, an infanticide case was basically something that wasn't expected. It went against all the normal rules and so by reading against the grain in those cases it's possible to see huge amounts of information so for example uh, in one case um, we have a young woman who is uh, pregnant to her employer and you have the testimonies of lots of other young women saying that they'd sat with her and they talked about it and they'd put their hands on their on her belly and they'd made kind of conversation about whether or not she was pregnant and this is really interesting because these women uh, are young you know they're, they're barely more than than girls and yet they are confidently pronouncing on matters of pregnancy and birth and they're doing that to the parish constables as well and this is not particularly unusual nobody is shocked which suggests that young women did have an idea of pregnancy and birth uh, even though we might think it was something that was kind of kept quiet in this period, it can't have been and this this information you know this knowledge must have been acquired in a few different ways. I suspect uh it was acquired in birthing chambers, so uh these young women might have been taken to visit somebody that had just given birth and they're picking up the conversation around them uh obviously picking up on animals and how animals give birth, but then also I think um I think just an element of curiosity and and general conversation. So you've got these kind of layers of knowledge being built up that you wouldn't know about. There's no way of accessing these. These are oral knowledge structures. Uh, Nobody's going to write this down until you have an infanticide case. And then it's, it suddenly turns up for us in the historical record in a way that we can't access any other way. So infanticide cases were a really rich source for me, particularly about community networks, because, the people that are giving evidence then are tied in. These are the people that went to the birthing chamber. These are the people that expect to have access to the birthing chamber and perhaps are denied. Uh, and so you can start to see, it makes it makes visible these networks that I, I'm not sure I could a- access any other way, actually. Um, so that's, that was the kind of main function of them. They're, they're, they're incredible sources of information, uh, incidental information, You know even down to um, household linens. And the, the kind of what you should have in preparation for birth, uh, those are visible in infanticide cases too. So they're really rich sources of information, really hard to read. Um, so it's a really emotional experience working with them in the archives, um, but absolutely full of these really useful nuggets of information.
1: As we discussed a little bit earlier, uh, you present feeling as an important part of the history of birthing. Uh, What precautions did you take as you considered how these 18th century women felt and what was useful for your analysis uh, as well as uh, what did you watch out for?
0: So all the way through when I was trying to write about 18th century women's experiences of birthing, I kept in mind a Twitter conversation that I'd had. So quite early on uh, in my PhD studies, I asked Twitter what it felt like to give birth. And I got lots and lots and lots of responses and not one of them was the same. They were all so different. And, you know, there were people that were describing it as the worst pain they'd ever felt. They thought they were going to die. Had people saying it was intensely uncomfortable and pretty much every, every kind of version of sensation in between. And I thought that was utterly fascinating that, that right now I can ask, a group of people how it felt to give birth and they would all give me a different answer and that then got me kind of thinking about how I apply ideas of feeling and sensation backwards in history and how I can then make these conclusions, draw these conclusions about how these women felt. So I tried always to keep in mind that I I couldn't possibly really know how they felt as they were giving birth. It's a really elusive Um, thing to capture that said I do attempt to understand how people are feeling so there is um the example of uh, a will in which the woman writing the will is pregnant with her first child and it sets out um all of her belongings and where she wants them to go um should she die giving birth and she's very explicit that it should she die giving birth Uh, and that is an indication of how she felt about the pregnancy. She's, you know, there's a real fear that, that, um, that this was gonna be, you know, the, fa- the final thing at the end of your life. Uh, because lots of women knew other women that had died giving birth. Um, and so that has to have been a kind of really oppressive sensation about pregnancy. Some of the women I write about are quite effusive in their letters about how it feels. So I have some beautiful descriptions from Frances Irwin, uh, where she talks about uh, the sensations of having little tendrils in her body entwined around her heart or t- around her neck. And she's kind of talking about the way it feels when she realises she's pregnant. She has several daughters, five daughters, I think. Uh, and so she's experienced this. She recognises the kind of feelings and the sensations of pregnancy and she describes them to a friend. Um, and you can recognise them. I recognised them. I thought, I know the feeling that she's talking about there. I know what that is. And that's a kind of really direct link. So sometimes it was easy. Sometimes these women were providing me with information about how they felt. But then it's, it's also interesting to think about some of the physiological elements of feeling and sensation. Uh, because as I've said at the beginning, that is Partly, what makes childbirth this really seductive topic to study, is the idea that it's this kind of all-encompassing bodily event. You can't stop it if it's happening to you. There's nothing you can do. It's, it's going to happen. Your body will do, will do it anyway. And it's this, that's the same for me as it was for these women that I'm writing about. And yet, we felt it differently. So. When I started thinking about about the body and the way that the body influenced birthing, that's how I arrived at hormones. And there, you know, you have to be really careful because hormones didn't exist for the women that I'm writing about, but they must have shaped the way the birthing body behaved. So modern scholarship talks about the release of oxytocin when you're giving birth and about how that can stop if you're not in an environment that feels safe and secure. And I can apply that to both bodies, to modern bodies and to 18th century bodies, but I have to recognise that culturally what makes that those bodies feel safe and secure is different. So what made my 18th century women feel safe and secure is very different from what makes made me feel safe and secure when I was given birth. And so it's, it's that kind of understanding that when you immediately recognize something, you must question it because it's so culturally prescribed, it's so shaped by the experiences of people around us, uh, by the, the buildings that we live in, by the kind of expectations that we have, um, that you have to be really careful. So I, every time I was writing about 18th century bodies, I, I remembered this Twitter conversation that I'd had and I tried really hard to kind of centre that in the way that I approached 18th century bodies. So understanding that we'd all been through a similar physiological experience but that it felt totally different and I mean you can tell me Hannah whether I sort of successfully managed to get a grasp on how people felt when they were giving birth it it seemed really elusive but I certainly did my best to kind of cover the range of of emotions and of feelings that these women might have experienced.
1: No I, I certainly thought you were very successful that was one of my uh the the my favorite bits about uh reading this book was was seeing that that feeling and emotion it's something that i i don't think you see very often in this literature um did anything uh surprise you as you were researching writing this book
0: oh that's a good question i think so what was i surprised by i was surprised by a lot of it but at the same time it seemed familiar too, right? And again, I'm going back to this idea of of why childbirth is so seductive, because it feels familiar. It can't be, but it feels really familiar. So I really loved um I really loved finding out about the kind of emotions that surrounded birthing. Uh, and you know, the, the longest chapter in the book is about the family of birth and the way that, that other family members felt when a birth happened. And this and and I was really, I think I was really pleased when I realised that the overriding emotion, the kind of emotion that drives the people that were there during the birth was love, that if you had to categorise it, it was, it was loving. And I was relieved about that because I think I'd maybe steeled myself for something a little bit more sort of mercenary, I suppose, something a little more unfeeling. Uh, and yet when you start to unpick it, um, love was really central. So you to, to to the way that, that birth was handled and there's this real expectation of love between parent and child as well um that I, again I was I was pleased to see it come through so strongly when I was going through the the primary sources um I think I was surprised by the amount of community involvement by what a social space it was uh, and I remember um as I was kind of writing up my PhD I think I still somehow had in my mind this idea that it was a a private space, that the birthing chamber was private. And of course it wasn't. It it reached outwards. Even though that moment of delivery, there was a restricted number of people there. It it wasn't private in the slightest. It was was central in the middle of this community. And it was kind of drawing on all these different threads of community that people experienced every day. Uh, You know, borrowing things, borrowing linens, uh, people coming to help people going to fetch people eating together and drinking together and talking about other people that were going on so i think yeah and maybe that was the most surprising element of the research was was kind of uh and maybe it's not surprising to other people but f- for me that realization that that it was this important associational space uh, and that it was important for men and women that it was a kind of uh central spot in the community that that kind of arose from nowhere and then vanished without a trace and I you know just kind of got absorbed back into daily life Uh, and I thought that was really special to be able to kind of study it briefly before it before it vanished again.
1: What do you hope readers will take away from this book?
0: Uh, I hope well there's lots of things that readers could take away from this book and I think perhaps when I started writing it um I hadn't quite realised the extent to which some of the discussions around bodily autonomy, around the kind of control and oversight of women's bodies were going to become quite as prescient as as they have. And so I would like people to take away from the book um, a a kind of person centred approach just to begin with. So by studying the people at the middle of these kind of ideas, these events, we get a different perspective from when we we understand, you know, from when we study different types of literature, like the medical literature. But I would also like it to kind of form the basis of perhaps some thoughts around how important birth is seen in society and also how it can make, Certain elements in society fearful how it's something to be controlled and overseen, um, and I think that that's a really interesting way of thinking about the history of childbirth and the way that you know it links into other types of histories: histories of sexuality, history of um, you know birth control and contraception, histories of medicine and healthcare. Um, so I would like readers to take away from this book that. Uh, the 18th century was this really kind of important formative point in our culture and that it really sort of shaped the way in which women's history um, developed the way that that women were in society was kind of fundamentally linked to their ability to reproduce Um, I feel like I'm waffling does that make sense
1: (laughs) no yeah absolutely no that's great Well, Sarah, uh, thank you for being on New Books in Women's History and for this wonderful conversation about giving birth in 18th century England. It was a pleasure to get to speak with you about your work.
0: Thanks, Hannah, for inviting me.